Grab your hymnals. Turn to 209. One of the great joys of my life used to be going to Main Street Baptist Church and listening to Elder Ward lead song service because he used to lead with so much enthusiasm. And there is a video that I posted years ago on my YouTube channel that you can go find where he is leading this song, Grace Greater Than My Sin. And at one point, we kind of finished the song, and he started saying, I believe in grace. Do you believe in grace? And he said, I'm a grace case. And I've never forgotten that. I'm, I'm a grace case. I think that perfectly describes me. I'm a grace case. And then we started singing it all over again. I was sitting behind him playing drums at the time and I was just caught up in his enthusiasm because I had never heard this song sung with so much energy. Till this morning, I want you to sing like you mean it. Are you a grace case or not? Let's sing grace greater than my sin. Marvelous grace of Yeah. 
fourth verse begins with marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. I think we need to stand up and sing that. We need to sing that like we're a bunch of grace cases who mean it. kind of been on my mind with some of my friends who are reformed. I don't know if it's just my friends or if it's just in reformed groups that they like to really dig deep and I think sometimes they try and apply things that aren't necessarily about them. So and I think especially certain things about the law in the Old Testament and they want it to be about them. And it becomes a thing of pride I think at some point where they is something I'm doing. But I just want to see what Paul has to say about it. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. 
and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. To verse 21, chapter 3. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, you were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. And just one last time, I'm going to go to chapter 5. Verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled against with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love.
want to echo what Steve said when he pointed out that we're going to be just fine because the younger generation of men here know the gospel. I hope that you were listening closely to what Josiah read because it is going to come up again in what we're going to look at this morning in the book of James. You can turn to the book of James. We're still in James 1, but there is a likelihood we're going to make it out of James 1 this morning. There is a lot of stuff to consider coming up here in James, because again, I want you to understand what James is driving at and the audience he's saying it to. So we need to kind of remind ourselves of the audience. Who is he writing to again? He's already identified the diaspora, the scattered Jews. That is the audience that he is primarily writing to, the 12 scattered tribes throughout the Middle East and wherever else they may be found. Now, we know from our Wednesday night studies, looking at the book of Ezekiel in particular right now, that Israel is not in a state where they are either God honoring or really God fearing. They are chasing their other gods. They are involved in all sorts of moral turpitude. They are not in a state where they are holy, righteous, God-honoring and worshiping people, and so God has driven them out of their land. The northern tribes have been gone out of their land since the Assyrian captivity. The southern tribes were driven out during the Babylonian captivity and then allowed to return. But what you have to know about their return is that even though there is a time of the rebuilding of the city walls and of the temple, and even though when Jesus walked on the planet there was a temple in Jerusalem, what's known as Herod's temple, Herod did not build that temple because he was a God-honoring man. He was actually trying to buy some goodwill from the Jews because he was a puppet king under Roman dominion. He was actually an Edomian, not even a Jew. And so he put up the money to build the temple, but he also built temples and shrines to other gods. Now, ever since the Babylonian captivity, the Ark of the Covenant has been removed from the temple. The original temple was built by Solomon because David initially wanted a house for God to dwell in, since he dwelt in such a nice home of cedar and God dwelt in a tent. And so he wanted to build a house where God could exist, where God could be, where God could place his name. God didn't allow David to do it, but he did do it through Solomon. And then the Ark of the Covenant was in the holiest place, inside the Holy of Holies. And so worship at that point toward Yahweh all came to Jerusalem. All the Israelites that could travel had to three times a year come to Jerusalem. They had to appear before God, and especially they had to appear on the Day of Atonement when blood was spilled before the ark so that the Yom Kippur, the covering, could take place. But during the time of the Babylonian captivity, that ark, the ark that had the angels with the wings on the caparith, on the top of the golden box in which were the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod that budded and a cup of the manna that they had gotten in the wilderness, that box disappeared during the Babylonian captivity, and people have been looking for it ever since. There's a lot of speculation 
about who took it and where it went. One of the most popular theorems out there is that Jeremiah was responsible for taking it away, and you can find on the internet lots of theories of where he may have taken it. Everything from he took it to England to people who say it's actually buried under Golgotha so that when Christ died, his blood actually spilled onto the Ark of the Covenant. All of these theories exist because no one's ever found the Ark, even Steven Spielberg, who gave it his best shot and sent Indiana Jones to go looking for that Ark. And uh, all we know now is that it's in a box in a government facility someplace. That's as much as we know. Yes, those pesky Germans got in the way, yes. Which sounds like an episode of Scooby-Doo when you say that, but yeah. So. so the point is, the Ark of the Covenant has been gone ever since the Babylonian captivity, which means that technically the Jews, the Israelites, have not been able to worship God or keep the atonement. They have not been able to do the prescribed activity that God has told them to do. They can't go into the Holy of Holies and spill blood around the Ark of the Covenant and spill blood on the Kappa. They, they can't do any of that anymore because it doesn't exist. Now, when Jesus died, there was still a Holy of Holies inside Herod's temple, but it was empty. There was no Ark of the Covenant in there which I think is one of the reasons that when Jesus died, we read that the curtain that separated everybody from the Holy of Holies, that curtain was torn in half from top to bottom, proving that no man could do it. It was such a thick curtain, and it was torn from the top to the bottom, and it was higher than any man was going to be able to reach and rip open. And so the Holy of Holies was then exposed, not only that it was empty, but proving that the worship of God and the placement of God was no longer to be considered the Holy of Holies. Jesus is now the holiest place. His blood spilled. He is the atonement. He did it once and for all, and you don't need the Holy of Holies anymore, causing the Jews, of course, to get real busy and sew the curtain back up and, and make everything just like it was so that they could keep their jobs. So my point in kind of recounting all of that history that you should be familiar with is that the Jews from the Assyrian captivity and from the Babylonian captivity, between then and when Jesus walked on the planet, even though there were a couple of restorative efforts made to rebuild the temple, the worship of God in the way God prescribed it never recurred. It just simply couldn't. And the Israelite and Jewish people did not magically get better. They continued in their rebellion. They continued in their sinfulness. They certainly had periods where they did a little bit better, but then they would always slide back into their pernicious ways. So when Jesus was walking on the planet, even though there was a temple, he did things like clear people out of it. And do that with a scourge, with a whip. And he would overturn the money changers' tables. And he declared, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. And that gives you a pretty good indication of what was going on in the place where God had placed his name. It was not morally good. It was morally corrupt. That's my point. James is writing to a group of people who still have that 
essential internal religious corruption to them, and he is advocating Christ. And he is saying Christ is the solution. Christ is the answer. You can't go back to legalism. You can't go back to Moses. You can't go back to the law. If you do that, as we heard this morning, if you're guilty in any one part of the law, then you're guilty of the whole of the law. James agrees with Paul on that. If you're circumcised, then you're a debtor to do the whole law, says Paul in Galatians. And so... There is this constant refrain throughout the New Testament that there's simply no way for human beings to be good enough, to be righteous enough, to be holy enough in order to obligate God because you can't go back to the law because even the Jews who were attempting to go back to the law could not establish their own righteousness by the law, nor could they actually and adequately worship God through the law because even the elements necessary for that worship were missing ever since Babylon. You got the picture? I want you to kind of get the mind frame that James is responding to in chapter 1, verse 21, which is where we're going to pick up. He uses several very descriptive Greek words that I don't want you to miss because he is telling these folks to put aside all their filthiness is the NASB translation of it. He says for them to put away, completely depart from, get rid of completely their ruparia, which is moral ugliness. It is badness. It is filthiness. He has chosen a very specific word here. And he is telling these Israelites and Jews, now that you've come to Christ, now that you're claiming Christ, you need to put aside all moral turpitude, all moral filthiness, get it out of your life. But not content with that, he's even going to say that they have an overflowing, a superfluity, and an abundance of this kind of wickedness in their life. And so that's why I want you to understand the history. They were so corrupt, they were so bad, that God drove them into servitude, out of their land, destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. That's what we've been looking at on Wednesday nights. And from that time until the time that Jesus walked on the planet, as I keep insisting, they didn't suddenly get better. And so James is writing to them and saying, there's widespread corruption among you. There is this overflowing filthiness among you. Get rid of it. Make it gone. Now, I have a book at home that was sent to me a couple months ago. And this book was on Christianity and ethics. The fellow who sent it to me wrote to me and said, do you think you'll ever teach a series on Christianity and ethics? And I point out over and over again that Jesus did not leave a religious practice or a set of rules or even an ethic apart from himself. The center of Christian religion is Christ. What you think of him, what you say about him, who do men say that I am, well, that was the center of his entire religion. Trust me, have faith in me. He didn't leave a whole set of do's and don'ts. That's what the law did. The law of Moses said, do this and don't do that. And it accomplished absolutely nobody's righteousness. 
And so Christ came and said, now that I have accomplished personal righteousness, now that I have satisfied the commands of the law and all the do's and the don'ts, now your religion is all involved in me. Trust me. I'm your redeemer. I'm your savior. I'm a perfect savior. I save perfectly. And so what you think of me determines your eternity. And he didn't leave a particular ethic. Well, if you're going to follow me, then be like this. But even though I've said that, and I hope I've stressed it, and I hope you understand it, but Christianity itself has an ethic to it. Here, I'll make it easy. Just because Christ has come and died and resurrected and ascended doesn't mean that it's okay now to kill. Is everybody okay with that? Otherwise, don't argue with each other. It's not okay. Okay, that would be a Christian ethic. We would agree that because we are Christians, we still have to act a certain way because we reflect Christ, because we are ambassadors for Christ, because we represent Christ in a sin-soaked world. And we're supposed to be different from the world. We're supposed to have a standard and ethic that we live by that represents and identifies us as being people who belong to Christ. And so we are supposed to live a certain ethic. This is what James is getting at here. He's getting at now that you've named Christ, now that you believe in Christ, now that you belong to Christ, put away, adamantly put away the filthiness of your life, that superabundance that you have of filthiness and moral, I keep using the word turpitude, I can't find a better word for it, just dirtiness. Just dirty. Just put that out of your life. It has no place within the Christian ethic. Does it make sense? Yes. So let's, we can't really start reading at verse 21 because it says, therefore, and we can't start anything on therefore. Let's go back to verse 19 because I think that's the closest reference point. No, because he starts with this you know, so we can't start there. Verse 18, in the exercise of his will, we've got to go back to verse 17 so we know who his is. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creation. This you know, my beloved brethren. But let everyone be quick to hear, and slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of, kakia is the word, it, it means wickedness. Put away all the wickedness of your life and the filthiness of the way you live and behave. And then receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. 
I'm not going to talk about this a lot because we talked about it in men's group, actually. We talked about how Paul, writing to the Romans, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In other words, Paul says that it is the word that leads to the salvation of men given to the Jew first and to the Gentile, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Here James says the same thing. Accept, believe, recognize the word that is given to you, that is implanted in you. God has planted his word inside us, which is why we need to be familiar with his word, which is why we need to read his word, which is why we need to study his word, because that, according to Paul and according to James, is able to save your souls. Now, I've had people write to me and people argue with me about something that they call gospel regeneration. How many of you have ever heard of that? You can go on the Internet and you can see people debating gospel regeneration. I had somebody call me a few years years ago and say, you sound like you're a gospel regenerationist. And my reply was, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to all that believe. I don't know what else to say to you. The word implanted has the ability to save your souls. Look, God who is sovereign can do whatever God wants to do. But what he chose to do, the means that he chose to bring people to salvation is his word. And he says so over and over again. So I think it's impossible to argue that people are going to be saved without the word of God. If that makes me a gospel regenerationist or whatever, I, I don't care. I only care what the Bible actually says. People are saved by reading the word, by listening to the word, by hearing the word. The presentation of the gospel is the way that people are saved. I don't care how smart you are, how clever you are. I don't care how many babbling brooks you listen to or how many trees you hug. If you're not Christian, but you're spiritual. If you're one of those people, was that too cynical? The people on the internet could not see that I made little bunny ears when I said spiritual. If you're one of those people, I don't care how spiritual you are. I don't care how naturalist you are. The simple fact of the matter is trees can't tell you about Christ. They can't tell you about his sacrificial substitutionary atonement. You need to learn that from the word. Those theological concepts you only learn in the word. You're not going to learn it by chatting with your friends or going out to dinner. You might enjoy them. You might love one another and you might have a great time together. But you're not going to learn the theology of the Bible. That has to be shown to you through the word. Now whether it's taught to you like the Ethiopian eunuch said, how am I going to know what this means unless some man guide me? Someone has to teach me this. So whether you're taught it or whether you're reading it, whether it's preached to you, you've got to come in contact with the word in order for you to be a fully orbed, well-rounded Christian person. You're not going to know it any other way. Nobody woke up one day and said, oh, I understand substitutionary atonement completely. That doesn't happen. You have to be taught that. Someone has to explain that to you. And they have to show it to you from the word. This is why I keep saying over and over again, hold me accountable to the word. Don't let me get away with saying things that aren't in the word. 
Somebody jump up, hold up your hand, and say, prove that if I say something absurd and ridiculous. Not the Scooby-Doo comment. But if I say anything that you can't find in the word, hold me accountable. I, I sincerely, genuinely wish that more preachers were held accountable to the word because it's the word implanted that has the ability to save your souls. So I just keep pounding the word. That's why I don't understand the preachers who do fishing stories and sports analogies and spend 15 minutes of your day telling you the story of their kids or something. I, I don't get that. Because unless you're teaching people the word of God, you are not helping people. Paul agrees. Jesus agrees. Jesus, when he was in his 40 days of fasting, and then he's in his temptation when Satan comes to him, and Satan misquotes the word to him, which takes a phenomenal amount of nerve to misquote the word of God to the very living, incarnate, walking, shoe-leather word of God. And, And... Satan comes around and misquotes the word of God. How did Jesus respond to him? He responded with the word of God. That's the importance he places on it. And he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word. So we have to know the word. We have to study the word. We have to listen to the word because James argues that the word of God can save your soul. But look at the contrast in that verse. The contrast is moral turpitude. Have you heard the word turpitude enough this morning yet? (laughs) Moral filthiness on one side. Put that away. Get rid of that. And on the other side, the word of God that can save your soul. And they stand in contrast to each other, which is why James would be so emphatic, which is why James would say, put it away, get rid of it, put it away from you. The word is actually apotathemi, which has that apo prefix connected to it, which means gone, away, get it away from you. So, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and in the NASB, it says, and all that remains, it's parasia. It means surplus. It means superabundance. It means the overflowing of something. So he says, get rid of your filthiness and this overflowing abundance of wickedness. Get rid of that. And in humility then, which notice... That humility stands in contrast with wickedness and this abundance of filthiness. Because the abundance of filthiness and wickedness comes from your ego. Comes from you thinking, God doesn't see, God doesn't care. I can get away with this. I'm me. I have known so many Christians through the years who say, well, God uh, has forgiven me in Christ. It's all under the blood. And therefore, I can get away with just about anything. In fact, I can, I can dip my toe in every little pool of, of sinfulness because, well, I'm completely forgiven. Okay, that's not what James says. If you were genuinely humble before God, you would recognize that God has the right to determine what the Christian ethic is. And having determined it, he could expect you to live it. Because he has already implanted his word inside you. Notice also that when James refers to the word, he's not talking about the Pauline letters. They haven't been written yet. 
They're just beginning to be written and circulating when James says this. So what word is he talking about? He's talking about what we would call the Old Testament. That is the word of God. That's the word of God that we need to understand to be knowledgeable of. I got an email the other day thanking me for the fact that we've been going verse by verse through the Old Testament. And the fellow said, I've been in so many churches, and nobody does that. Nobody takes the time to just read the word of God. But it seems to me that if James would say it's that word of God that has the ability to save your soul, then you ought to be paying attention to the word of God. If I care about you, if I care about your soul, if I care about your ever-living, never-dying soul, I'm going to take you to the very thing that can save your soul, which is, according to James and Paul and Jesus, the Word of God. Does this make sense? Yes. Am I over-preaching it? No. Okay. More. Because <laughs> even I realize I'm getting a little excitable. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, put it aside in humility and receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Then James, this is the point in James where we find the first sort of contrast between his philosophy, which again, think about the audience he's writing to, Think about the people he's writing to. Think about their history. Think about their worship. That is different than the audience that Paul is writing to who are Gentiles who don't have the background, who don't have the religious worship, who don't have the prophets, who don't have the covenants, who he, who he can't just quote Isaiah to and they're instantly going to go, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that. Paul can't bring up the prophecies of Jeremiah and say, there, but you already know this. They don't know it. They're the Gentiles. They're not involved in the history of Israel and the worship of Israel and the covenants of Israel. So there's a contrast between what James is now saying to those people who have that background, history, prophecy, and covenants, and what Paul says. And this is one of the first places in the letter where you start to feel that. Because now he says... But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Let me approach this from two different positions. Number one, I agree with that entirely. I completely agree with that. Don't just be listeners of the word, be doers of the word. We sing it sometimes here at the church, trust and obey. What does that mean? It means trust God, have faith, and obey. Be obedient to the things of God and the things of Christ. So I agree entirely. But part of the reason that James is saying this is because he's saying it to a group of people who have lived their lives based on having a law, not just Ten Commandments, but 613 rules that they have to obey all the time. Don't just read the word, but obey the word. Pay attention to what the word says. Don't just be a reader of it, be a doer of it. And so James can say, in keeping with all the Old Testament prophets and with the wisdom literature, and even with Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he's agreeing with all that and saying, don't just hear the word, which is implanted in you, but be doers of the word. And now he's going to define what that means. Notice that he does not say, if you're going to be doers of the word, go back to Moses. He doesn't say that. 
If you're going to be doers of the word, keep the Ten Commandments. That's not what he says. In fact, he's going to bring up the law, which is the law of Moses, and he's going to contrast that to what he calls the royal law, which he's going to identify as love your neighbor as yourself. And he contrasts the law to what he's going to call the perfect law of liberty. In each of those instances, he uses the word nomos. It means the instruction, the teaching, that which was imposed on people. So he's going to contrast the law of Moses with do unto others and love others the way you want to be loved and the perfect law of liberty. He's going to draw that contrast, but then he's not going to let us off the hook and say, but just hear that and have faith in it. He's going to say, also do it. Also do it. Be active in it. He's going to say perfect religion, the perfect practice, the perfect ethic of religion is doing. He's going to say things to do. Go look after the widows and the orphans. Go do that. The doing is very <laughs> vital to James's view of the Christian ethic. You got all that? Okay, have I lost anybody yet? I know I'm talking fast, but I'm going somewhere. Hopefully you'll all come along with me. And when I get there, you'll all go, oh, I'm there. Instead of, Jim, where exactly are you? Because I'm not there, wherever that is. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And now James, for the first time in this letter, is going to stretch out a little bit. He's going to explain what he means by being a doer of the word. He's going to give a little analogy. He's going to create a little story. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he is. In other words, he's saying if you're just a reader of the word, but then you walk away from the word and don't do it if it hasn't affected you, if it hasn't become part of your life, that would be like you looking at yourself in a mirror, seeing your reflection, saying, oh, that's what I look like, which every morning for me is kind of a terrifying event. Because <laughs> in my mind, I'm still 21. I know, a lot of people are nodding in my <laughs> In my brain, I'm still a young, vital, handsome, good-looking guy with long hair. And then I look in the mirror, and there's this guy looking back at me who I don't recognize. And so James says, once you've looked in the mirror at yourself, it would be like you walk away from the mirror and immediately forget what you look like. You walk away and go, wait a minute, was I tall or short? Was I white or black? Did I have hair? What color was my hair? I, I don't remember anything about looking at myself. He says that's what it's like when people read the word and then walk away from it and aren't doers of the word. That's as ridiculous as the example of somebody looking in the mirror, walking away and going, I don't know, what do I look like? I don't remember. So in James's mind, and I think we would agree in the Christian ethic mind, 
it is important not only to read the word, to ingest the word, to have the word implanted in us, but also to live by the word, to make sure that our behavior is conducive with the word so that the word becomes the standard of our lives. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, and once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, now the second word law is added by the NASB translators. What James wrote is the one who looks intently at the perfect law of liberty, but there is a definite article. The, the word the shows up there, and so the translators make it the law of liberty. But I think he's saying the perfect law is the law of liberty. Whoever looks intently on that and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Okay, so let's talk about this perfect law of liberty for just a second. Let's see if we can define what that is, because James doesn't define it for us. We can assume it. We can assume that it is the gospel. We can assume that it is the standards that Christ has put before us. But James later, and James does this several times through the rest of the letter, he brings things up, he says things, he writes things down, and then he changes topic. And then he goes on to a different topic, and then it's almost like he had a, a little brainstorm and went, oh, wait, I've got something else to say about that former topic. And so he goes back to the former topic and says something else about it. And so we have to kind of piece these things together. Look at chapter 2, starting at verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, okay, here's the royal standard. In other words, the law or the standard or the imposition that belongs to the king. That's what he means by the royal law. The law that belongs to the king, according to scripture, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if you are fulfilling the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He draws that in contrast to the law of Moses. Read, if you would, Tom, go back to the book of Leviticus and pull up Leviticus 19.18 because that's exactly where we find that. Leviticus 19.18, back in the Levitical law is where we find this particular rule, which says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Out of the whole Levitical law, why would James call that the royal law, the law that belongs to the king? And why would he contrast that with the law of Moses? Well, you have to go back to the book of Matthew to understand that. In the book of Matthew... The Pharisees have come to Jesus and they're testing him. They're trying him. They're trying to poke a hole in his theology and show that he's not really the Messiah. Matthew 22, starting at 34, you probably know this story. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, 
asked him a question testing him. In other words, he wasn't sincerely looking for a, an answer. He just wanted to see if he could trip Jesus up. So he tested him. He said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? The expectation, apparently, is that he thought Jesus would go to one of the ten. I mean, those are the ten big commandments. Identify one of the ten that we can put above all the others so that we can say, well, we're doing that, so we're pretty good. So they tested him and said, what's the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And then though they didn't ask, he says, and the second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole of the law and the prophets. Whenever you see that phrase, the law and the prophets, that's the Tanakh. That's the whole of the Old Testament. The whole of the Old Testament scripture, according to Jesus, rests on Love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And at that point, he, the Messiah, the king, made that the royal command. That's how James sees it. So James would then call that the kingly command and say, do this. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to scripture, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and then you are doing well. All right, quick test. This will be kind of fun. How many of you are doing that? Isn't that remarkable? The whole of the law, the entirety of the Old Testament, under which everybody was judged. The last word in the Old Testament, I love to keep pointing out, the last word in the book of Malachi is curse. The Old Testament ends with a curse because the whole of the Old Testament and its legal standards and its legal rules didn't save anybody. All it did was make everybody guilty. That's Paul's point at the beginning of the book of Romans, which we've been looking at in men's meeting. He spends the first three chapters just leveling the playing field and saying Jews are guilty and Gentiles are guilty and everybody's guilty therefore salvation has to be dependent on God's grace and Christ's finished work and that's God's ultimate plan so the whole of the Old Testament the whole of the law everything the law is about is about two things Jesus narrows it down to two things two standards two basic things love God heart soul mind strength love God love your neighbor as yourself there's only two now there's not 613 and there's not 10 big ones and there's not I'm going to take all of that and make it two basic things nobody does it there's nobody in this room that can say they love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength. There's nobody in here who can say that they began their day by making sure that, I don't know, pick a human, that April brushed her teeth, and her hair was combed, and she put a nice outfit on, and she, she got some breakfast, make sure she eats today. There's, nobody gave any thought to it. The first time you thought about April today was when you walked in the building and April was here, and you said, oh, she looks nice, her hair's combed, and she's all dressed. And, she, and you had nothing to do with it. Because, in truth, you don't really care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. You got up, you ate, you brushed your teeth, you, you did your hair. You, 
You took care of you, but you didn't really love your neighbor as yourself. Here, I'll make it easy. You don't split your paycheck 50-50 with me. You get it? If you loved your neighbor as yourself, then when you went to work every day, when you got paid, you'd split it with your neighbor. Because, well, you love your neighbor as yourself. That's a 50-50 split. I love me. There's 50%. I love my neighbor that way. That's 50%. Nobody does that. Nobody does that because we're sinful people. And even if Jesus narrows down the entirety of the law to two things, we still struggle with it. James says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But this beginning of this chapter is about how they were showing partiality within the church, that they were deciding who deserved the high seat and deserved the attention, and that was the rich man, the well-to-do man, the man with the golden rings. And then if somebody came in who was poor, who didn't really have anything, who couldn't help or enrich the church, well, then we kind of put him in the back and we kind of ignore him. Well, that kind of partiality is what he addresses in verse 9, saying, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law. There's the law. Now he's talking about the law of Moses. You are convicted by the law as a transgressor. So there's the royal law. And there's the law of Moses, but wait, for whoever keeps the whole law, this is why I conclude that the end of verse 9 is about the law of Moses, because he's clearly referring to the law of Moses here. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's guilty of it all. Okay, so to describe it then, he says, for he who said, this would be God, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. That's just logical. That is just axiomatic, that the law stands as a complete unit. The law stands as an entirety that you either perfectly keep every day of your life from beginning to end, every one of the rules, you never stumble over any of them, or you're guilty of the whole of it. Now, Josiah began this morning by saying, and Josiah, I'm probably going to include what you read on the recording so, because I've referred to it so many times. But, but Josiah said this morning, you know, within reform circles, they have a tendency to want to go back and, and get some part of the law, keep some part of the law so that they can feel good about themselves. They can go back and at least point to something they did, some part of the law. What they don't seem to understand is what Paul said and what James is saying. They agree across the board, the law stands monolithically for one purpose, to condemn you. That's all the law can do. It can't help you with your righteousness because you don't have the ability to keep it. The law is good, Paul writes in Romans. The law is good, the law is fine, the law is righteous. The law came from God. It was administered through angels. The law is fine. The problem isn't the law. The problem is you. You can't do it. And since you can't do it, the law can only condemn you. That's all it can do for you. And then James says, if you're guilty of any one part, you're guilty of the whole of it. 
And this is the reason why here at GCA we don't do things like tithing because you only find that in the law. And if I were to impose that on your conscience and then you don't do it, I have made you, I have forcibly made you guilty of the whole law. And I don't want that responsibility. That's why we don't do the sign of the law, which was keeping Sabbath. That's why I don't tell you, we've got to meet on Saturdays. We've got to keep the Sabbath. Don't work on the Sabbath. Don't make a fire on the Sabbath. Friday, 6 o'clock till Saturday, 6 o'clock. Don't do any kind of servile work. Don't, because we're keeping Sabbath. The reason I don't impose that on you is because anytime you break it, well, then you're guilty of the whole law. And nothing, nothing can help you because what Josiah read is, You're now separated from Christ because you're trying to achieve your own justification via the law. So Christ is no help to you. God can only condemn you because you are, in Paul's words, fallen from grace. There's no grace to save you. There's no grace to help you. And you think you're going to satisfy God by your own behavior. Therefore, God is going to judge you to show you that your own behavior can't save you. And I would be imposing that on you if I was imposing any part of the law on you. So that's why we're reading the Old Testament. That's why we're finding out what the law entails. That's why we're finding out what the Old Testament prophets have said and what the standards were. Because they did have the law. They did have the advantage of all the rules. They did have all of that imposed on them. And they ended up under a curse. And you've got to separate that from the church. I would never place that on the church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ, blood bought, fully redeemed, perfect savior. There's no way that I'm going to impose on you the things that are going to bring about God's anger or God's wrath, which the law has to do because it encourages people to become egocentric. And as we just read James saying, in humility, you have to accept the engrafted word. And ego will drive you to, I can do this. I got this. Here, hold my drink. Watch me go. (laughs) I mean, that's no way to exercise Christianity. Yes, I agree with James. Don't just be a reader of the word. Be a doer of the word. I agree. But be a doer of the word because you're saved in Christ Not so that God will save you. That's legalism. And you have to know the difference. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are going to be judged By the law of liberty. There he is. He uses that term again. The law of liberty. He's saying don't be judged by the law of Moses. Because the law of Moses can only condemn you. Instead speak. Act. Walk out your life in such a way. That you recognize that your judgment is going to be by the law of liberty. The law of freedom. The law of God's good grace who is going to look on Christ as your complete atoning sacrifice and then be good to you instead of the law of Moses, which requires that God look at everything you've ever said or done or thought and judge you accordingly. So the law of Moses stands in absolute contrast 
to the law of liberty. Do you see that now? So that's what James means by it. That's why we have to skip around a little bit in James to understand it. All right, we're back in the first chapter. We're going to start at verse 22. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. And once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in all that he does. So if anyone thinks himself to be religious, this is the only place in the whole Bible you're going to find this word, religious, this adjective form of it. Uh, he is going to mention religion a couple more times, but this version of religious is a word that James came up with to say, if anyone thinks that he's living out, walking out his religion, he's using it as a negative. What he means is people who are busy, as the Jews were, thinking that their religious practices, their sacrificing of animals, or their tithing of their mint and cumin, or the way that they behaved, anyone who thinks that their religion, which they think is saving them, anybody who thinks they're walking out their religion and so they're religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Okay, so here's what he's describing. He's describing Jews and Israelites in particular, but I think we can apply it to us as well. People who think they're walking out their religion, their standards, their practices, they're thinking they're doing it right, they're doing it good, but they're talking in a way that is not godly. They haven't put away the filthiness. They haven't gotten away of that overflowing egocentric filthiness and it's reflected in the way they talk, the way they speak, what they say. He says to those people, all of that religious stuff is worthless because you have counteracted it, you've contradicted it by the way that you're speaking. And when you speak, you speak to people. Is that obvious enough? And if you're speaking to people with that overabundant filthiness... He says, then all that religious practice, all those animals you killed, all those visits to the temple, all that genuflecting, all that stuff that you've done, that's worthless unless you're behaving with a proper God-type ethic, which starts with your tongue. Go to chapter 3. Because having said that, James then returns to it again later. He goes on to another topic. He talks about the way they're behaving in church and that they're not to show partiality. But then at the beginning of what we call chapter 3, after he's talked about faith and works, and we're going to go through all that, he suddenly remembers, oh yeah, that tongue thing. We need to talk about the tongue thing. So he starts talking about it again. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, 
knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, then he is a perfect or a complete man because he is able to bridle the whole body as well. Notice what James is getting at. Even if you bridle your whole body, that's a word that is used for training horses. Somebody who has trained his tongue so that he speaks appropriately then has the ability to bring his whole body under subjection and to treat his religion appropriately. But even if he does all the religious stuff with his body, even if he knows when to do everything, even if he knows when to sacrifice, when to give, when to tithe, when to stand up, sit down, fight, 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 if he knows everything he's supposed to do, and in the end he's not bridling his tongue, then all of that religious practice is worthless, and he does not really know how to control his body. According to James, it all starts with your mouth and how you talk. This is easy. Have you ever been around somebody who said they're a Christian? And you say, great. It's so nice to meet a fellow Christian. And then they say, and filth and foul and foul and filth. And they start spilling out this dirty language and these ugly words. And they start talking about other people and they start gossiping. Don't you immediately question whether or not they're really genuinely Christian? It's like, okay, you, you seem to have a certain amount of head knowledge. You seem to know some doctrine. But you sure are quick to talk about other people and talk in ugly ways. This happens, by the way, in abundance on the Internet. I'll just throw that out there and let it sit. Especially on, what's that word? Facebook. (laughs) I'm Christian. I'm Reformed. I hate these other guys who disagree with me. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're supposed to be controlling your tongue. So James says, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, then he is a complete man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits in the horse's mouths, a minute ago he mentioned bridles, and on a bridle it has a bit which goes into the horse's mouth, and that's how you control a horse. A great big mammoth animal that could kill you with a a single stomp, that animal is controlled by human beings because we put a bit in his mouth, and that piece of metal allows us to grab the reins and get the horse to do what we want him to do. So James says, now if we put bits into a horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. That's his example. By putting the little bit in his mouth, we control his whole body. He says, that's the same way the tongue works. If you don't control your tongue, that messes up your whole body. Verse 4, behold the ships also. Though they are so great, they're so large, and they are driven by strong winds, they're still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. In other words, when a ship decides to change course, like the ship decides, when the captain of the ship (laughs) decides to change course, he doesn't run outside and re-steer all the sails and all that. He just moves the rudder. And the rudder, in proportion to the ship, is just a small piece. And that little change in the rudder steers the whole ship. Okay, James is making an equation. Your tongue is like a rudder that steers the whole body. 
So also, verse 5, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. What he's getting at there is there were recently huge fires in California, for instance. Do you know how most of those fires are set? It's set ablaze because somebody with a lit match dropped a little flame and it hit the dry grass, which hits the dry trees, and next thing you know, the state is burning. Okay, well, that's what Paul is getting. Okay, so that's what James is getting at because he says a little flame starts a big fire. A little bit is how you steer a horse's gigantic body. A little rudder is how you steer an enormous ship. That's the same way with the tongue. That little tongue in your mouth ends up steering the whole rest of you. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our lives and is set on fire by hell. Your whole life, and I'm sure this is true of everybody, so I won't ask you to raise hands. But through the course of your whole life, you know you've said things you regret saying. <laughs> that, that got reaction immediately. You know that there are things you said that you wish you could take back. Stuff that the minute it fell out of your mouth, you were like, whoa, whoa, I didn't, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that. I didn't. Or you've said something you thought, I got away with that. That was a big boast. I said great things, grand, that was big, that was good. And the next day you got fired. We all know experiences where we've said things, where we've talked things, and then we've gotten bad consequences. Well, he's saying the big consequences are eternal consequences. James is arguing that you've got to watch your tongue because everything else in your life, everything else about your Christian ethic, everything else about the way you live is determined by your tongue. And we know that. We know that inherently. We know that axiomatically. We know that experientially. We know the simple fact that if we say terrible things, people don't want to be around us. We know that if we don't control our tongue, we can do a tremendous amount of damage. There have been people in my life who I would rather had just hauled off and hit me than said the things they said. Because the tongue, he says here, is a fire. But I would say the tongue is a sword, and you can cut people up, and you can take people apart, and I'm talking from experience, because I used to think it was just part of my rapier wit that I used to slice and dice people, until I reached the point where I had genuinely, literally, no friends, until my brother approached me and said, has it occurred to you that nobody likes you? And it was a fact. Nobody liked me. Nobody wanted to be around me because of how I spoke. They loved the way I played drums. But, oh, they hated the way I would cut people down. And you know what? It takes no more effort to build people up. It's the exact same amount of effort. In fact, I would argue it takes more effort to cut people down. 
My daughter has picked up this habit. I think it's a very positive habit. Let me just throw this out here quickly. She has a habit when she comes across somebody that she doesn't know, when she comes across a, a stranger, somebody, checkout counter, whatever else, she finds something about them to compliment. That's a beautiful necklace. Your hair looks great today. Did you do it? Where'd you get that dress? That's a great dress. And people just light up. It's amazing. People who are going through the drudgery of their day, you know, just apple, pear. I love your necklace. You do? All of a sudden, they become conversive. They light right up. And as often as not, people who call themselves Christian go around making people feel bad about the time they spent with them because they end up condemning them or putting them down or telling them they're not good enough or they don't know enough theology or they're not going to church enough or they're not. Our job is to build people up. Our ministry is the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling God to men and men to God. That's the ministry of Christianity. It's not the ministry of making people feel lousy. And yet that's the kind of Christianity I grew up in. I felt browbeaten every Sunday. I left church feeling like I just wasn't good enough until they convinced me that I just wasn't good enough. And then I left them. I'll show you who's good enough. No, our ministry, our purpose is to say positive and good and gracious things because God has been good and gracious to us. And we need to reflect that. That is all part of the Christian religion. Every species of beasts and birds, this is verse 7, every species of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. That's true. That's a fact. Whether we're talking about horses or dogs or cats or hamsters or fish that we keep in a bowl or whether we're talking about orcas that do tricks at SeaWorld or whether we're talking about elephants in the circus or whether... Mankind has managed to tame just about every animal out there. But no one, verse 8, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, with our tongues, we bless our God and Father, and with that same tongue, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. That's rampant hypocrisy. We bless God. We praise God. We pray to God. And then we curse men who are made in the image of God. They belong to God. They don't belong to us. Our judgment of them means nothing. But we all, in our egocentricity, think our opinion matters. And we all think we have every right to tell people what we think of them because that's our opinion. And after all, they're like that. And if they don't want to be put down, then quit being like that, according to me and my opinion of being like that. And he says that shouldn't ought to be. They belong to God. They don't belong to you. Again, I say our purpose, our goal is to demonstrate Christ is altogether lovely, to demonstrate Christ, to be the ambassadors of Christ and his grace and his sacrifice and his goodness and his kindness and his long-suffering and his patience. And yet so often we who name the name of Christ are impatient and graceless and mean and it all starts with our tongue.
Every time, it all starts with what we say. And by the way, let me add that just because people are hiding behind a keyboard typing stuff, that doesn't change all the rules I just laid out. Just because you're typing it on social media instead of saying it with your physical tongue, it's still ugly stuff you're putting out there in the name of Christ. And I want to say, stop it! Because James says, stop it! And it's all part of putting away that overabundance of filthiness. Get rid of that filthiness. Put it away from you. Walk out your Christianity in a way that represents Christ appropriately. We're nearly done. With it, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. And from the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? The answer is no. It can't do that. You're either getting fresh water or you're getting poison. These are the two options. It's either bitter water or it's fresh water. So then out of your mouth, there ought to come goodness and kindness and Christianity and grace and love and affection and building people up and recognizing your neighbor as better than yourself, loving your neighbor as yourself. These are the principles that James is after. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. So he's giving examples from nature to say that naturally you can't have Two contrary things both happening at once and he sees Christians using their tongue to do damage as contrary to the Christian profession and the Christian ethic. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. I think we're at a reasonably good stopping place. Next time we're together, we'll start chapter two. Hey, Micah. We're out of chapter one. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> we didn't talk about the widows and the orphans yet at the end. So we do. You're right. You're right. I meant to. You're absolutely right. No, I meant to. I looked at the clock and thought, everybody's going to want to be done. They're going to want to go home. But Micah wants to keep you here for five more minutes. Now let me add, and let me add that next week, because I've got kind of a busy weekend next week, Michael will be here preaching. So I'm counting on all of you collectively that when he gets done, you raise your hand, you say, I've got questions. And then if he missed anything, make sure to point it out. Treat him the same way you treat me. That's all I'm saying. I did say to you earlier that verse 26 says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, but he doesn't bridle his tongue, then that man's religion is worthless. Then James defines what is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. And the good religion, the proper religion, he says, is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world, which goes back to put aside that overabundance of all the filthiness. Don't let yourself be stained with the world. Notice, if I can just say this quickly, notice the contrast between 
the religious practices, killing animals, going to temple, following the Levites, going to the high priest, all that. He says, okay, that's religious practice, but real religion, Christian religion, true religion, comes under the heading of count others as better than yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go look after the widows. Go look after the orphans. In other words, walk out what it is that you believe. Walk it out in a way that shows love and compassion for other people. That's true, genuine religion, not the killing of animals and going to temple and following Levites. That, that no longer counts. True religion, genuine religion, is caring for others. See the contrast? Okay, am I done yet, Micah? Am I good? Okay, we're good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.